1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. Well, this is, by any estimation, a sensitive and difficult topic on which to preach. Yet one of the beauties of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't get to choose what comes next. Whatever comes next is what you deal with, and what comes next here is the subject of sex and sexual immorality. That's what comes next here. There's a study that's done every year on the attitudes of singles toward sexuality. In 2013, 82% of women and 56% of men believed texting or online flirting counts as being unfaithful. In 2014, the number of women who believed a flirtatious message is considered cheating dropped significantly to 68%, while men observed observed a slight decrease to 51%. In 2014, 90% of women versus 100% in 2013 agree passionately kissing someone else is cheating. The number decreases for men as well, with only 75% agreeing versus 86% last year. Nearly 25% of singles would consider marrying someone who was unfaithful to them while they were dating that person. Sexual license, sexual sin worsens, doesn't get better. And so what Paul does today is to answer some slogans that the Corinthians have. And he does it in a super methodical way. 
he gives a logical argument and then he follows the logical argument with a theological argument. So he gives an argument based on reason alone and then he gives an argument based on God's informing logic or theological argument. And so we'll see both today. And the theological argument has four assertions to it. So you'll want to take notes. Now realize that it is Sunday morning and that it is cloudy outside. This is prime sleeping weather. All right? I understand that. I teach an 8 o'clock Old Testament class at Montreat. I have a kid who sits to my left who dozed off for two days in a row until this last time he did, and I nailed him with a, a whiteboard marker, and he hasn't fallen asleep since. So I hope not to have to throw anything at anyone this morning, uh, but this is a heavy-duty argument that Paul makes, and it'll get a little heady. Uh, let's look at it. Paul says, quoting them in my text In quotes are the phrase, all things are lawful for me. It may be that way in your copy of Scripture. All things are lawful for me was a Corinthian slogan. All right, It was a saying that rolled out of Corinth. So they had written Paul, and perhaps they picked up this slogan. How might we say that today? Here's how it is said. I think most often in 2014, you'll finish this, I'll start it. If it feels good, do it. Right? That's how it is said today. And so people, especially in the arena of sexuality, have adopted that mantra. If it feels good, do it. And here... Uh, They are saying, all things are lawful for me, but Paul rebuts their saying by saying, and this is his logical argument, but not all things are helpful. All right, if for some crazy reason they change the law, increasing the speed limit on Highway 70 to 100 miles an hour, and you are 16 years old and you get your driver's license and you get on Highway 70 and you brag about going 100 miles an hour on Highway 70, do you know what any adult would say to you? Well, that may be lawful, but it isn't helpful. It isn't helpful for you, neither is it helpful for anybody else on the road. All things are lawful for me, they were saying, Paul answers that by saying, but not all things are helpful. Just because it isn't illegal doesn't mean it's good to do. And then Paul repeats their saying again, all things are lawful for me, but he says, I will not be dominated by anything. What does he say that? This is critically important in Paul's logical development for why People should avoid sin at all costs. Paul asserts here, as he does in Romans 6 and other places, that sin is a power which will master you. Sin is a power which will master you. Sin will enslave you. 
Sin will seek you out and attempt to get you in its hold. And you say, but Jerry, that seems so old-fashioned. Or uh, Paul may have said that is it anywhere else in Scripture. Genesis 1, 2, you have creation. Genesis 3 uh, is the fall. Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have a couple of boys. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7, Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And certainly she was right. God had helped her through the pain of childbirth, which he had talked about in, in, in the chapter before. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Nothing wrong with their jobs here. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, there was nothing wrong with that, by the way. Nothing wrong with the fact that his offering was of the fruit of the ground. We'll see what the problem was. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So they both bring offerings to the Lord. They know to worship God. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God said, good job, uh, good job, Abel, and God ignored what Cain did. Good job, Abel, ignored what Cain did. Why? Because Cain brought vegetables and Abel brought an, uh, uh, an animal. No. Abel brought, don't miss it, the firstborn. If Cain had brought the first fruits, God would have looked on Cain's offering. As a matter of fact, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Let me say something to all of us as an aside. When God disregards something you do, the answer is not to get mad at him. The answer is repentance, which is a heart that is broken because whatever it is you brought has not pleased him. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? God is saying, I'm not being too hard here. If you get this, I will respond. And if you do not do well, don't miss this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. Do you know what that means? Just this week, I was sitting in my office, and uh, the Hamby girls were uh, with their mom working out the, in the food pantry when Josh decided that he would scare the life out of them. So they happened to be standing outside. I can look out my window. I notice that they're just hanging out out there when all of a sudden they scream so loud. And I turn to look and they are jumping up and down in fear because Josh bolted out of his door and just screamed at him for no reason. These are the people I get to work with. And so, so that's what he did. Sin is that way, except it's subtle. Sin crouches at the door. Sin stalks you, teenagers. Sin longs to wrap its tentacles around you and squeeze the life out of you. Sin is nothing to play with. It isn't a toy to play with. It is a force to be reckoned with. All of Scripture refers to sin 
with inherent power. You cannot play with sin and not get burned. You will get burned every single time sin starts out subtly, starts out small, starts out and appears to be not so big a deal. But it's crouching at the door and its desire is to rule you. And if sin can do that, sin will do it every time. And Paul said there are things that may be lawful, but I won't be mastered by those things. I would ask you this morning, what is it that masters you other than God? What is it that has a hold on you? And if you can't get it, you're miserable. If you can't get it, you're not happy. If that girl doesn't look your way, if that guy doesn't pay attention to you, if... uh, If you don't get that promotion at work, if the person doesn't acknowledge you, it could be uh, something like that, more abstract. It could be something more defined. It could be a chemical. It could be a drug. It could be a relationship where you're codependent and you must have him, you must have her, or you can't operate. A logical argument is what Paul is making here. Don't be mastered by sin, which is crouching at the door. This week I went searching and found a study that was done in 2012. It was done by the University of Texas at Austin. And the point of the study was to connect the timing of a person first having sex with later satisfaction in their marriage in their relationships. So the study made use of the National Longitudinal Study on Adolescent Health, which looked at 1,659 adolescents between the ages of 16 and all the way through to until they turned 29 years old. Among the participants who were married or living with a partner, later sexual initiation was associated with significant lower levels of relationship dissatisfaction in adulthood. This is a secular study. They have, this is an amoral study. And what they discovered is have sex early, pay later. Researchers found that these associations with a later sex experience were not changed. Some people may say, well, what about in ge- genetic environment? No, environmental factors didn't, didn't make a difference. This says, furthermore, the associations could be explained by differences in education, income, religiousness, religiousness or adolescent differences in data and involvement, your body mass index, or attractiveness. None of all of that was ruled out. The study showed scientifically, that engaging in sex early in life leads to problems later in life. The scripture is clear about that. And now studies show it, they have for quite some time. Paul makes a a logical argument to the statement, if it feels good, do it, or all things are logical for me, or all things are lawful for me, his logical argument is um, they may not be helpful and they may master you. And then he makes a theological argument. What is it? 
It's interesting. It's hard to follow. This was a crazy hard text to prepare. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's one of their stains. All right, so they said food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. What did they mean by that? Here's what they meant. As food satisfies the craving of the stomach, sex satisfies the craving of the body. I mean, just like a stomach needs food, a body needs sex. That's what they were saying. So they say that to Paul. And how does Paul answer that? He says, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here's how Paul answers it. As food satisfies the craving of the stomach, God, not sex, satisfies the craving of the body. Theological argument number one, please hear me, only God can satisfy your deepest need. That's what Paul is saying. Only God can satisfy the deepest need of your life. In this context, we're dealing with sex, but that goes in any context. Only God can meet the deepest need that you have. Please hear me. And in the next service, we have so many singles, but but please hear me in this service, teenagers. Please hear me. All right, so I'm going to be bold here. Maybe it's not bold, maybe it's just being logical. I don't think there is anything these days that is real love in high school. All right? I know some of you adults met in high school. That was a bygone error. All right? Doesn't happen much anymore. I'm not on Facebook, but... Wendy is, and some other folks are, and occasionally they'll say, Jerry, look at this. And it will be some teenagers from this church espousing their undying love as high school kids for somebody else. And and what I've noticed is that same teenager was espousing their undying love for another high school kid like three months ago. Somehow, that undying love they espoused three months ago died and came to life anew, springing forth the joyous fountain of undying love for another teenager. That doesn't happen. It just really doesn't happen, teenagers. Come on, don't throw that word around. Please, you so cheapen the word love when you tell some seventh grader you love her. Or you're going out. Where are you going? (laughs) To the playground? To PE? You can't go out in the seventh grade. And parents, don't encourage it by arranging movie dates. Are you kidding? That's insane. Why would you ever put your kid in that place? It's just crazy, isn't it? Only God can satisfy your deepest need. And I'll tell you what, every married couple in the room, as a matter of fact, well, all the teenagers, you feel free in just a moment to look around. Every married person in the room will raise their hand, I believe, to this question. Can, if they don't believe that their husband or their wife can satisfy all their needs, raise your hand if you say, no, he can't do that. Raise it high. He can't. Nobody's that good. And guess what? They're especially not when they're going through puberty. I mean, 
Nobody's that good. No one is that good. They will never satisfy all your needs. And what Paul is saying is that, no, the Lord is meant for the body, and the body is meant for the Lord. God has so engineered this thing that he alone can satisfy the deepest needs of your life. Amen? He alone can do that. There is no one else. Now, I will tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Wendy is the very best thing that happened to me. And one of the ways God satisfies the needs and the wants that I have is through a wonderful wife. But if something were to happen to her and she would no longer be in my life, guess who would be? God. He alone can satisfy those needs. Paul goes on to answer it with an interesting Interesting observation, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Second theological argument is this. Your body is a member of Christ's body. If you belong to Christ, your body is a member of Jesus' body. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, certainly we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let me give you just a tad bit of Corinthian slash Greek history. The Greeks believed that the spirit was the ultimate. The soul was the ultimate. To the extent that the body didn't even matter. So the body didn't matter at all. So what they were able to do with their flawed logic here and flawed theology was to say, since the body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do with the body. Because ultimately, in their belief system, the body will be destroyed one day. And since it's going to be destroyed, according to their belief system, since it's going to be destroyed, who cares? So what they did was to sanction immorality by that view. It's just my body. It's my soul that matters. I can distinguish between the two. But the resurrection turned all of that on its head. Why? Because when Jesus died, that marred and mangled body that hung on the cross that looked so bad that no one would even want to look at it, God loved Jesus' body enough to do what? Raise it from the dead. What does that say about God's value of your body? He values your body. He values your body enough to raise it one day and to give you a brand new one. He's in the process of restoring you. Ultimately, restoration will come at the resurrection. How do we know? Romans 6 says, when Jesus died... If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you died with him. And when he was raised, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior in a spiritual union, you were raised with him. 
you identify between your body and his, your spirit and his, and to such a degree that there is a union now. You, your body, is a member of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The way you think can, if you will be renewed, as Romans 12, 1 says, the way you think can be just like Jesus thinks, can it not? That's what the testimony was all about. My life before Christ, and then Christ, and then I'm not doing drugs anymore. It's the before and after. It's the change that occurs in you. The theological argument, Paul's second line of theological arguing, arguing is your body matters to God. God raised Jesus up and God will raise you up. Now, let me extend that. And Maybe you've never thought about this, but it's great New Testament theology stuff. Do you realize that Jesus became God in human flesh by becoming what? Incarnate. We call it the incarnation. And do you realize that had God so chosen, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he could have thrown off the human body and not have it anymore in heaven? But does he? Yes. How do we know? The first martyr of the church, what's his name? I told you this would be like class of Stephen. And Stephen is being stoned. And as he is being stoned, he looks into heaven. And who does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Spirits don't stand. Jesus is standing on his own two feet. God values the body enough to say to Jesus, you'll have it. For eternity, once you got it through Mary's womb, the incarnation was now and forever. He didn't truncate it upon Jesus' ascension. Jesus still has a body. Your body matters. Let me just slide off here. This is why you should take extra care. Teenagers, let me speak to you this morning. It goes for all of us, but let me apply this here. This is why cutting of your body is a sin and wrong. This is why eating disorders go against God's plan and, and intention for your body. This is, this is why you ought to take care of your body. All of us, God values this body. He values your body. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Uh, prostitution was a critical problem in Corinth. There were at least one writer, extant writer during Paul's day, said a thousand cult prostitutes who roamed the streets of the city of Corinth looking for somebody. So when you Join your body sexually with a woman or with a man who is not your husband. When you do that, you are taking the members of Christ's body and attempting to join them with a prostitute. Paul says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality, he says. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. All right? Theological argument number three, you will be somebody's slave. Romans 6 bears this out. Paul makes the point here. When you submit your body, he says, to a prostitute, you submit to her mastery over you. You submit to her mastery over you. And in that sense, sexual sin differs from all other sins because it is a submission of your body if it is mutual. It is a submission of your body to the other person. And when you do so, you start to be enslaved. I want to speak to you for a moment. The study bears this out. There's another study that I looked at this week but don't have time to quote that talks about the changing dynamic of sex in a dating relationship and how it changes everything. And I want you to hear me well. There are some of you who are single in this room and you have engaged in sex with the person you're dating. And all of a sudden, he has a hold on you and you can't figure out why. This is why. You gave yourself to him. You submitted yourself to him. There's mastery involved in that. And you will either be God's slave or you'll be the slave of that person or the slave of that habit. That's the point Paul is making. In that act, you remove yourself from the lordship of Christ and you submit yourself to the lordship or the mastery of that person. So here's what happens after that. Not only will you slip in that area, but you'll notice your morals slide here, and they slide here. You'll cheat. You'll lie. All to cover this up. You'll covet. You'll have such feelings of insecurity. Most girls, when they uh, give their bodies away sexually for the first time, say they do it. To bring security to the relationship. The guy's most likely pressuring. They're bringing security. If I do this, I'll keep him. If I'll do this, I'll hold on to this. And when you do that, you're saying to that man, you can call the shots. I've given myself to you to keep you. Or, guy, if it's a girl. And they'll do the same thing. You're saying, I'll do this to you 
to keep you. You will be somebody's slave. Paul says in verse 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is slave market language. Paul is saying, you were on the market. You were on the block and you were up for sale. And there was a God in heaven who looked down and through Jesus Christ, Jesus on the cross paid the price for your sins. And God said, I'll bid on her and here's what I'm willing to pay for her, the life of my son. I'll bid on him. And here's what I'm willing to pay for him, the life of my son. And so God saw you on the slave market of life. He bid his only son for you. He gave Jesus for you. Please hear me, teenager. Please hear me, single person. I don't care what she says. I don't care what he says. There is no one in in your life, no one you will ever meet who will ever die for your sins. There is no one who will ever go the distance for you like that. Only Jesus Christ has. Only Jesus Christ ever will. He is the one that you can trust. And that brings us back to the first point. God will meet your deepest need and your deepest longing. And it isn't sex. It's love from God. It's this deep emptiness that you will have until you surrender your life to him and say, okay, I'm done. And there's some of you, and you're listening to me right now, and you need to look up at me while I'm preaching to you who need to walk out of a relationship and say, it's over today. I'm done. I'm finished. No longer in this. You need to walk out of this place and be finished with what it is that you're in. Because it is saying no to God and no to Christ. And it is saying yes to being enslaved and mastered by somebody who is wrecking your life. And I would say to you as your pastor, that breaks my heart. And honestly, the fleshly side of me wants to sucker punch some people sometimes. But it breaks my heart. You are more valuable than that. You are worth the son of the living God. Don't sell yourself cheap. Don't sell yourself short. Let him feel that deepest long and you will be enslaved. Wow, I just cleared off a spot. All right, let's keep rolling. Number four, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the fourth theological argument Paul makes. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. All right, your, your place is valuable because, your body is valuable because of who lives there. It matters because the creator of the universe lives there. You say, Jerry, how does that work? Here's how it works. I can drive my little Jeep Patriot all day long, and it's just me driving my little Jeep Patriot all day long. But same Jeep Patriot, same Jeep Patriot, if for some reason I was just super, super good friends with Michael Jordan, and I don't think he could fit in there, but let's say if I was super good friends with him, and we were hanging out one day, and, he, and most people are surprised my Jeep Patriot is stick shift, and he would say, Jerry, I'd love to drive this. 
stick shift. And he were to get in my Jeep Patriot and drive it through Charlotte. All of a sudden, I've driven through Charlotte many, many times, and nobody has turned to look. But if Michael Jordan is driving that Jeep Patriot, all of a sudden, everybody's looking at that Jeep Patriot. Why? Because Michael Jordan is driving it. When you come to God by faith in Christ, the creator of the universe moves in. And this shell of a body that, that maybe you went through awkward teenage years and just thought you were unlovely. Maybe you sit here as a single person and think, is there something wrong with me Why I'm still single at this age of my life? The shell of this body is now inhabited by none other than the God who spoke and worlds came into being. And because he lives there, you matter. You matter. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your body mass index is. Doesn't matter what color of skin you have. When God moves in, everything changes. Everything. All of a sudden, you matter. Simply because of what your body, of who your body houses. There are two commands in this passage, I've left them to the end. One's right in the middle, and it says, flee sexual immorality. You know what that means? Turn and run. So let me speak to you, married people, for a moment. If there's somebody at work who's caught your eye, and you've shared a text or a Facebook communication with them, If it takes it, it's worth getting a new job. Whatever it takes, flee. Turn and run. But that isn't enough. Most people look at that and go, okay, I've done what I need to do. No, the sex drive is way too strong just to flee sexual immorality. On the flip side, glorify God with your body. That's the second command. How do you do that? Well, sexually, you do it sexually, purely with your husband, with your wife. And that's it. There's nobody else. Nobody else. Oh, but Jerry, we've dated this long. Doesn't matter. It isn't God's plan. Isn't God's plan ever at all. So you run from it, and on the flip side, you glorify. How do you do it? Well, if you've been at Grace for any period of time, you know one of my favorite persons died this week. True it, Kathy. I've always admired the founder of Chick-fil-A. I mean, for one reason, it's good chicken. <laughs> All right. And he invented that sandwich. I've read his book. All right. So he invented that Chick-fil-A deal. It's good chicken. But it goes deeper than that. So when I learned, Wendy shared with me, I think Monday, that he had died, I went and pulled up his obituary. I was just curious. What would they say about this guy? He was 93 years old and so I have this obituary in my hand. and Here's how to glorify God with your body. How do you do it? Well, um, 
He was a good leader. Chick-fil-A is a privately owned company, and last year their sales were $5 billion. For 47 consecutive years as the leader of Chick-fil-A, they had annual sales increase. Some of you are in sales. That's unbelievable. If you can lead a company for 47 consecutive years to grow, that's unbelievable. Not to have a dip somewhere. He was a Southern Baptist who taught Sunday school to 13-year-old boys. All right, so there's some 13-year-old boys sitting over here. I love seeing you guys every Sunday. You pay attention great. You do really well. 50 years this guy taught guys like you. I mean, you're cool, but that's a big job. (laughs) He decided to close his stores on Sunday. In Forbes magazine about 10 years ago, they called him a cult. They called Chick-fil-A a cult. I read the entire article. Why? Because of the standards he kept, that kind of thing. But here's what he's often quoted as saying, I like to be remembered as one who kept my priorities in the right order. We live in a changing world, but we need to be reminded that the important things have not changed. I have always encouraged my restaurant operators and team members to give back to the local community. We should be about more than just selling chicken. We should be a part of our customers' lives and the communities in which we serve. Just uh, watching Hannah play volleyball recently, at North, this weekend at North Greenville, we went to Chick-fil-A, and there was a little card in there saying, for every couple of items you purchase, we'll donate a dollar to the uh, after-school good news clubs in upstate South Carolina. Our church sponsors one of those at PG Baptist, fantastic ministry. He started the leadership program for his uh, crew who works there. And since he started that uh, in 1973, uh, they've given away $32 million in, scholar- in college scholarships. He started foster homes, uh, uh, the Truett Cathy's wind-shaped foster homes. Thirteen of them have operated for many, many years, and those kids call him Grandpa. Started wind-shaped camps in 1985, and to date, 18,000 kids have gone to wind-shaped camps where they learn about God and the gospel. That's how to glorify God with your body. But maybe the biggest is that he is survived by his wife of 65 years, Jeanette McNeil Cathy. That's how to glorify God with your body. I have no desire to stand up here and rant and rave and just for the sake of it. But Paul makes it clear here, run like crazy from sexual immorality. Run, students run. College students run. Singles run. Married people run. But run to God. And instead of glorify him with your mouth, with your eyes, with your ears, with yourself.